We're continuing our look at the Psalms together this morning, and that leads us to Psalm chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open, uh, open up to that. If you haven't, uh, then that's, that's fine. We've got it inlaid in the, uh, in the bulletin for you. Um, I know we've mentioned this already, um, but uh, one of the joys of uh, looking at the Psalms is that they, they really explore the, the vast array of human emotion. Like just about anybody can walk into this, uh, walk into this service and look at these psalms, and uh, and and something that they're experiencing will be uh, will be named uh, more than likely in one of these psalms. And just like last week, we're looking at another psalm of David. It's another psalm of lament. Um, but uh, one of the things that we'll see here uh, is, is are the ways that what feel like various conflicting. <laughs> Feelings or emotions can exist right alongside each other. I, I don't know um, the last time I watched Inside Out, but it's a movie that we've seen several times in our house. And uh, if you haven't watched it and you want to, uh, make sure you budget some time to hit pause and cry for a while because it's just very emotional. Um, but it's incredibly clever and, uh, and really an interesting movie. But one of the proposals that it makes is just one of the ways that, you know, some like... The way joy and sadness can exist at the same time, like the role that they have to play at the same time in a person. And one of the things I think you'll see in this psalm in particular is just the way sadness and anger can collide with hope and joy. Let's look together. This is Psalm chapter 4. I'll read verses, I'll read the entire psalm, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. And the Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. And there are many who say who will show us some good. Lift up the light of your face upon us, Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. And in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand the the trajectory of hope and joy amidst the trials of daily life in this world. Help us to see it, to feel it, to understand it. I pray that you would speak it directly into our hearts. And I pray that we would leave here more in love with our Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would be so real to us in a way that you have achieved this on our behalf. And I pray, Father, that you would help me. I pray you would strengthen my voice this morning and that you would help me to, to honor you and to serve these people well with this time. Be with us, Holy Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So not quite a year ago, the History Channel released a podcast. Some of you are probably familiar with it. It's called It Is Said. And it, it was really an interesting uh, 
series. And what it was was uh, a look at some of the iconic speeches that have happened in more recent American history uh, going back, you know, I think as far back as about 60 years ago, some, some of the, you know, sermons and, and speeches that were made as far back as the 60s. And, uh, and what it does is a really interesting way is it just points to the power of the spoken word and, uh, and how there were times, really critical times that, you know, had a, like, uh, critical points in, the, in our history where people were having very important discussions, important debates, entertaining important ideas. And history was shaped by somebody that was willing to stand up and speak into a microphone. Words are powerful, is the argument that it was making. And we know this is true. This isn't only true at large as we look at society and culture and the way words have shaped you know, the dynamics of how we move forward. We also know this is true as we look individually at our own lives. Like some of the most powerful and powerfully encouraging times in our lives have been when somebody said something important to us that we needed to hear. And at the same time, some of the most powerfully discouraging times in our lives are when somebody said something to us. Just the other day, I was having a conversation with a friend where he recalled something that was said to him as far back as 20 years ago that he still remembers and holds on to and created pain for him. In this passage, what we see is that David is deeply troubled by people in his rule that are speaking about him in disparaging ways. In verse 2, it says, these people are turning his honor into shame and they're spreading lies about him. Now, we don't know necessarily what the circumstance, you know, last week we had a, we had a, a lament that was rooted in a historical um, event. Well, we don't necessarily know what that would be with this, with this psalm. Some people speculate that it might have been about the economic circumstances of, uh, of Israel at the time because he makes this reference to, to, um, to grain and wine that abound. But either way, people are talking about him, and it stings. It hurts, and it's scary for him. And what we know is that King David has just all kinds of options available to him as to how he would respond to this. He could add his own words to the fray. Certainly a king speaks a lot, right? He could add his own words to the fray, maybe set the record straight or fire back at these people. He could answer their disparagement with his own disparagement. Actually, that's not what we see him do here. What we see him do is he he works out his lament in a really interesting And what I would say is a God-honoring and faithful way. Instead of turning toward these people, he does something else. And so the operating question for us, I think, is as David, how does David, King David, God's anointed who sits on the throne, how does he respond to, to when people are saying disparaging and threatening things about him? And I want to try and answer that question by asking really three questions as we go along. Where does David turn? What does he do? And then what does he find? Where does he turn? What does he do? And what does he find? First, where does David turn? What, what we see in this passage is that David turns away from the conflict. And what he does is he be, begins to remember who he is in God. He remembers who he is. Look at verse 3. He says... But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. And he's saying, I belong to the Lord. 
I have a relationship to God because I belong to Him. He has set me apart for Himself. And I have a relationship to Him that is inviolable. It is unassailable. There is nothing anybody can say that has a chance to touch the completely sturdy relationship that I have with God. He remembers who he is. God has set his particular attention on David, and he said, this one belongs to me. And there's nothing anybody can say that can threaten that reality for David. And then he remembers that he is heard. Isn't that really interesting? I belong to God, and he hears my prayers. One of the ways David knows, not just that he's in relationship to the Father, but one of the ways he knows that he's loved by the Father is that God hears his prayers. And one of the things that we can do to serve somebody really well is just by listening to them. That's one of the greatest things you can do for a person. And one of the most harmful things we can do for a person is by telling them we're not interested in listening to them. What we see here is this fundamental disposition of God toward David, saying that David belongs to him because God has set him aside, and that, that David has access to God, that God actually hears his prayers. So what David does in the midst of real pain In the midst of feeling like he's under attack, instead of fighting back, what he does is he turns to some of the most fundamental truths about who he is. That's where he goes to find comfort. And look, these are like, this is an identity. He's saying, no matter what is said about me, I have this base identity that exists no matter what. Because of who God is and what he has done. And so one thing I want you to grasp here is that if you belong to God, if you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, then you have a relationship to him that is inviolable, that is unassailable, that will never end, that God has pursued you through Jesus, that Jesus has come after you and won you to himself, that he has paid a deep price on your behalf. And that relationship will never go away. That's what the Bible teaches us. Because it's all rooted in what has been done for you. And this, I would propose to you, is the base, foundational identity for the Christian. And we got to hear this because in our world, there are immense number of identities available to us all the time. Are there not? Like we, we can have the vocational identities kind of like rooted in the things that we do to make money or to provide. We could have recreational identities that are rooted in the things that we enjoy, you know. Uh, we can have political identities. Those are everywhere right now. Uh, we could have, we can, we can even have identities that are rooted in who our family is. Uh, if we're married or if we're not married, if, we're, if we have kids, we, we can make our identity our kids. And, and, and all, that exi- like, all that exists except for the, the fact that those, those identities, those alternative identities require just a tremendous amount of upkeep. Right? Like you, they require constant maintenance. And they might serve you well for a time until you fail in some way. 
And then, then what, what, what are you left with? Like David's identity as a king probably served him well for a while until people were really unhappy with him, right? And the most wonderful thing about our foundational identity and who Jesus is is that it just, it, it's never going to go away. Because it's not rooted in what we have done well or what we haven't done well. It's rooted in what Jesus has done for us. And it starts with his love for us and it ends with his love for us and it's all rooted in what he has done for us. And because of the work of the Holy Spirit and the way that he keeps us, we'll never be able to walk away from that identity because he is never walking away from us. It is just tremendously wonderful. And we have to remember this, especially in times of suffering, as we wait for Jesus to return and set not just us, but the whole world to rights, that that David doesn't feel the need to pick up words and use them as a weapon. What he does is he turns and he remembers what his relationship to God looks like. That's where he turns. And listen, that means... The last words about you are what Jesus says about you. And he says you are free. He says you're free because you're forgiven. He says you are dearly loved. And I think one of the greatest challenges of the Christian life is actually believing that's true. I think that's one of the hardest things for for us, is actually believing that we are loved by a great God who determined pre-eternally to win us back to himself, that we are loved by him and to live out of that secure love that we have. And so what we see here is that David does a few things that nurture his awareness of this love that he enjoys from, from God the Father. And the first thing he does, what do you see? The first thing, look, I spent all week looking at verse 4, wondering how it's even possible. What does it say? It says, be angry and do not sin. And that's picked up by Paul in the New Testament. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry and do not sin. Well, how is that possible? How is it possible for us to be angry about something and not sin? What does David do? Well, the first thing he does is he thinks about it. Ponder in your hearts is just a, it's a common Hebrew idiom, which simply means to think. He says, do it, do it in silence. He says, while you lay in your bed quietly, contemplate. And it's really interesting to me that he tells you to go ahead and ponder things quietly. Think about the things you're angry about in the very place where you realize that you're probably angry at somebody. Come on. I am not the only one here that knows what it's like to lay in bed right before you fall asleep and realize that you're frustrated about something. And you just watch your mind stir, like your mind, like you're trying to fall asleep and your mind is coming alive with all the things that might have frustrated you. You might be thinking about for the first time. You might be thinking about a person that you're angry about. Like, it's interesting to me that he says, go to the quiet place and think about this thing for a while. I think that that might be why I like watching TV right before I go to bed. You know, like just, let's just eliminate that little quiet quiet space where you, where you can think about it. 
But what David is saying to us here, I think is important for us to think about, is that we need those quiet spaces. Like we need to take time and think about the things that might make us angry. I think we need to take time to think about the things that might be said about us, because sometimes they might have truth in them, and we need to think about them. Remember, he is freed to engage those hard things that he's angry about, because he's coming at it from a place of knowing what his relationship with God looks like. And so he thinks. He thinks about those things. And then what does he do with all those thoughts? Well, the next thing we see him do is that he begins to go to worship. Look at, uh, look at verse 5. It says, offer right sacrifices in order to what? Put your trust in the Lord. So he thinks, and then he worships. And to put it simply, this is what worship does. That what worship does is it helps, it does a lot in us, and we may never know all the things that the Holy Spirit does to us as we worship God, but one of the things it does is it teaches us to trust God. To trust God with the things that are most important to us. Amidst all the difficulty, amidst all the triumph, amidst all the sorrows, and amidst all the joys, we keep coming back to worship. Because what it does is it restores our trust in the Lord. And it's a simple movement that David lays out for us in this passage from thinking to worship to trust. And look, I think David, just based on this, looking at this verse or these couple verses, I think David's talking about both private and public worship here. Like, I, I really think he's referring to what our private worship looks like as well as what it looks like for us to, to go worship publicly together in a gathered space. I think he's asking us, what, are, what does our prayer and meditation life look like? What, is our, what does our private worship look like? How do we cultivate a life of worship internally just in our, our relationship to God? There's actually an example of that happening where we see, uh, where we see thinking to worship, to trust in the Bible. There's this great story. Y'all know, or maybe you do. Y'all know the story about Jonah. And Jonah, Jonah runs, Jonah's running away from God and he winds up in the belly of a fish. And the thing that stands out to me the most about that whole story is that, is that God said, I'm going to put you somewhere where you have no choice but to think for a little while. And then what happens is Jonah composes a wonderful prayer of worship. (laughs) Like the the prayer in Jonah chapter 2 could belong in one of the Psalms. In fact, you you just know that that the, the construction of that prayer was heavily informed by the Psalm book. And then he leaves willing to go where God was sending him. It's a, a movement from thinking to worship to trust. That's private worship, but think about public worship. Like, what, what are the things? Just look at some of the things that we've done here this morning. We've heard God speak to us. We call to worship. We're hearing from his, from his word, calling us to worship. We've responded to his call. We're, we're singing back to him, and we're speaking that, in ways that expose our hearts and our like expressions of God's faithfulness. We are singing back to him. We have spoken with honesty together, with a common voice as we confessed our sins before the Lord, and then we were comforted. 
as we heard words of his assuring grace spoken over us, and we listened to his word, and it, it, like he speaks and we're speaking back. That's dialogical. That's a conversation where he speaks to us and we speak back. There's a conversation, and in a few minutes, we're going to gather around his table together. And we're going we're gonna to eat the meal that he provides for us. Worship is this very personal conversation followed by a meal. Where we are working out together what it looks like to consider the goodness of what God has done. Moving us to trust in him. Because, because why is this so important? Because worship is reorienting us all the time toward what, what is actually true. It interrupts. What it does is it it can feel very interruptive. What it is doing is interrupting some of the natural obsessions that we develop all the time with our own story. Like, where is it going? What am I doing? Like, what what am I supposed to do? And what it does is it it lifts us out of our own story to to reveal to us that we are, in fact, um, participating in a grand global drama of redemption that God is accomplishing in the world. And so he's telling us about how God created the world and, and he created a good. It, it's telling us that worship is telling us the story all the time about the heartbreak of our own sin. And, and worship is telling us the truth about who Jesus is and what he came back to do. And worship is telling us of God's design for the ultimate redemption of the world. And as we consider the truth of these things, of all that God is up to, it lifts us out of the need to control our own stories. And I tell you that nothing gives me the perspective that I need to get outside of like the small little story that I'm living in, the one that I'm trying to control, than to realize that God is calling me into participating in the grand drama of redemption that he is accomplishing. It is orienting us toward that truth that we need to hear, especially, especially when times are hard. And so as it orients us to truth, it is orienting us, worship orients us to trust. It teaches us that the concerns that consume our hearts are safely hidden in the hands of a loving Father. If we can say that these things are true about God, if we, if we, if we can trust our sins to God, then listen, we can certainly trust our wounds to him. And we can relax knowing that we can trust these things to him. Worship. What does David find on the other side of that? He offers right sacrifices, putting trust in the Lord. Where does it take him? It's incredibly beautiful. If you look at uh, verse 7, you see that he begins to behold the face of God. And that takes him to, to, to what I want to say. I want to say that takes him to two places. I want to say it takes him to transcendent joy. And it takes him to a place of sublime security. Transcendent joy, because what does he say? He says, you have put more joy in my heart than when their grain and wine abound. 
Some people think that David is referencing the complaints that are being said about him. The people are complaining because there, there isn't grain and there isn't wine and there are economic concerns about this and they're looking to their king to fix those problems. But when I see this, I actually think David is, is uh, feeling some pity for, for these people. He's like, I have joy that far surpasses the best things that what they're looking for provide. That is transcendent joy that David is experiencing here. In sublime security, what you see is that he, he says he, now he will lie down and he will go to sleep. And remember that, the, that where you lie down was the place where you laid awake and got angry in verse 4. And now when he lies down, because he knows the security that he has in his relationship with God, he, he's able to drift off to sleep. For you, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That is sublime security. And listen, all of this, all of this is, is under the beholding the face of God. As he looks at God, it leads him to that place. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And so I, got, I just want to ask you a question as I start to land the plane here. When you consider the face of God gazing at you, what kind of face are you thinking about? Like are, you, are, you, are you thinking about the face of, of a father who loves you? Or are you thinking of the face of somebody who's disappointed in you? Or, or is discouraged by you? Or is asking more from you? Is it the face of someone that leads you to a place of joy and security and rest? Or is it the face of, of somebody who is, uh, who is creating unrest? Or maybe you don't know what that face looks like yet. Maybe you're still working it out. A few weeks ago, my, my family and I took a weekend away, and we ran off to enjoy the mountains in, in East Tennessee over Memorial Day weekend. It's become a bit of a family habit for us and uh, to take that weekend. And during our time there, one late afternoon, we, were, we found ourselves just around a, a very large campfire. It was big. There were a lot of people there. And, uh, and some of them we knew, many of them we didn't know, but we were just mixing with them. And it, it was our family. There were like a number of people, number of, uh, of little kids running around in a, in a fire. And, uh, I'd say, I just think campfires are magical. Okay. And I'll tell you what, little kids think that too. And, and it's like, it's like, uh, they see a fire and they think, is it dangerous? Yes. Uh, if I touch it, will it burn me? Yes. Well, then I must play with it. <laughs> And, uh, and so we had kids that were just kind of like, they were playing this game together and we were all watching, but they would pull a, you know, pull a stick out and it'd be on fire and they'd wave it around a little bit until it went out. And then they called it recharging. They would stick the stick back in the fire. And this was going on for a while. And I think a lot of the parents were like, Hey, this is great. They're occupied, you know, just as long as nobody kills anybody or, you know, everything will be great. And, uh, you know, those times when you think back as a parent, you're like, I really needed to be paying better attention. Um, as the afternoon, you know, made its way into the evening and it started to get dark, we didn't realize it, but the crowd shifted. Um, 
people were kind of moving around a little more. More people showed up. The crowd got bigger. And the space where the kids were playing with each other, you know, got constrained. And my son, Gavin, totally accidental, wasn't aware of this, but he was waving around the stick and accidentally caught uh, a woman that we didn't know in the head, like just popped her. And uh, it startled her for sure. It scared her. Um, it probably hurt a little bit. And uh, look, I'm not saying that um, that uh, he shouldn't have been more careful. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have been more attentive. But the things, some of the things that this woman said to Gavin were just simply uncalled for. And I wasn't, I'm really, you know, I wasn't there when it happened. I was on the other side with, you know, just hanging out with some friends. And I came back a few minutes later and, uh, and Shonda told me what happened and I didn't know what to do. Just as a dad, I look over and I see Gavin standing off with his head down and a smoldering stick laying on the ground, just looking, um, looking wounded by something somebody had said to him. And I I was angry at, you know, what was said to him. I was, I I didn't know, like, I didn't know what to do. And so I did the only thing that I thought to do. And I went over to Gavin and uh, I got on my knees and I grabbed his face and I pulled it as close to mine as I could. Because I just wanted him to see with the hope that the face of a loving father might mean more to him than the words of an angry stranger. And I think David is helping us to see, helping us to find life, helping us to find all of our joy, helping us to find all of our security in the face of a loving father who is gazing at you with delight. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, I pray you would help us to trust these things are true. You say they're true. Help us to believe that they're true. I pray, Lord, as uh, as we make our way through the li- through a life where wor- words are just flying all the time. That you would help in us, stir in us an affection for these words of life that you've given to us. Words of healing, words of your goodness. Help us to trust them, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.